I think what needs to happen is some of these cases actually need to be won. And so like after we get some cases that are won, it's going to open it up more to like more and more attorneys are going to be willing to take on these kinds of cases and you know, more angles are going to be considered. I think the fraud angle is a really good angle as well. And that doesn't come with the statute of limitations. And like, for instance, um, I've heard of some surgeons telling a patient, for instance, that after they have surgery, you know, like if they have bottom surgery, the result is going to be indistinguishable from, you know, a biological female or biological male. I've literally heard of, you know, surgeons telling people things like that. And that is absolutely fraud. And then we have, we know one lawyer right now that's working at it, working on it from a human rights angle as well. Like this care that it's not, that is not taking into account under, underlying issues and comorbidities, like that is a violation of human rights. So there's all these different angles that you can look at it from. And so for somebody who thinks they don't have a case right now, just don't give up hope because I mean, this whole thing is going to come crashing down and it is already starting. You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Before we begin today's episode, I have a couple of exciting announcements I don't want you to miss out on. Number one, the film I am proud to be a part of, Affirmation Generation, is now available. This film does an incredible job of exposing the gender crisis, and we want it to reach therapists, doctors, parents, teachers, politicians, and anyone in a position to care. You can stream our early access edition of this film online anytime, as well as watch the trailer, learn more, or donate to the film at affirmationgenerationmovie.com. Number two, I've started a new private online community for listeners of this podcast. You can find it at somekindoftherapist.locals.com. This new offering fulfills several needs. Over the past year, my reach has grown exponentially, and while it delights me to know that my podcast is now in the top 2.5% globally, the matching rise in the amount of emails and DMs I receive has been overwhelming. It's simply too much for one person to handle, and while I care about my listeners, staring at a screen typing words at them for free feeds neither my stomach nor my soul. I had to create some kind of filter to make my engagement feel sustainable and nourishing to me. And fortunately, this is exactly what Locals was designed to do for independent content creators like myself. When you join my Locals community as a supporting member for $8 a month, you get to submit questions that I will answer in members-only Q&A live streams. I'm also considering offering behind-the-scenes early access to new podcasts as they're being recorded. Plus, of course, you get to meet light-minded people who share your interests in an online environment that's free of ads, bullies, and trolls. With Locals, you also get to choose how much you reveal about yourself on your profile so you can be undercover or out in the open. And you get to select whether your posts in my community are visible to anyone who drops by or only to other committed members. 
If you'd like to support me at a higher level, you can become a premium member for $24 a month, which allows you to privately message me, and I will prioritize responding to premium members' direct messages. I think this is a great solution that is designed to meet everyone's needs. Although we are just getting started and this community is currently small and new, we've already got some great people on board, including thoughtful therapists, concerned parents, and free-thinking, politically homeless people. Please come along and check out my growing community at somekindoftherapist.locals.com. You can get your first month free with promo code GRANDFATHER. Make the most of your trial membership by asking a question in the latest Q&A thread, and I will provide a live streamed answer you can join me for or watch later. What have you got to lose? All right, now on to today's episode. Today's interview is with Kat Cadenson. She is a D-trans woman and an advocate for transition justice. But in addition to that, you might also know Kat is a musician. She's an incredible vocalist who's worked hard to get her voice back after it being impacted by testosterone. Kat has just released a new single called Let Go, and I'm honored to have her permission to highlight her work So at the end of this episode, we're going to play her new single, Let Go. I recommend watching this interview on YouTube if you're just listening in audio format because we're going to show the whole music video that she's just releasing. If you're just listening, though, you'll hear the song version. But stick around if you can till the end and check out her new music video, Let Go. Now on to our conversation with Kat. Today my guest is Kat Cadenson. Many of you are probably already familiar with her. Uh, Kat is a well-known detransitioned woman as well as a musician, a singer and artist, who has been featured in our film, Affirmation Generation, as well as the Detransition Diaries, which was put together by Jennifer Law and Callie Fell. Jennifer Law will be appearing on a future episode, or that episode actually might have aired by the time you hear this. I'm not sure what order they'll come out in. Um, and Callie Fell has hosted me on her podcast, Venus Rising, so there's those connections that listeners might be familiar with. Um, Kat is known for her music. She goes by Cat Robot on Spotify or anywhere else you get your music. And today I'm excited to see where this conversation goes. There is her detransition story, um, healing through music and art, and also some exciting announcements. Kat has recently started working with a new organization called Transition Justice, and I want to find out all about what they are up to. So Kat, welcome. Thank you so much, Stephanie. I appreciate you having me on and I've been aware of your work for a while and thank you so much for helping out the D-trans community and helping to spread awareness and support this community and everything else that you've been doing. Yeah, it's, it's a pleasure and an honor and, you know, much needed work as you and I are well aware. Um, there are a lot of people who have been hurt and not all of them have realized yet that they've been hurt, but you know, We're setting up those support systems for them. And you've been a source of wisdom and strength. And I think a lot of people look up to you. Um, You really radiate sort of a a grace and poise and dignity that I think shines a light for a lot of people. Um, You've talked about reclaiming your voice and sort of the role that music had in supporting your process of realizing that identifying as trans and medicalizing your body was not ultimately the right path for you. So I am, uh, I'm of two minds because a part of me wants to jump right in and ask you about transition justice. Um, 
but I'm aware that there are actually people out there who don't know you yet, um, even though I feel like <laughs> I've seen you everywhere I, I go as someone who's in the world of detrans advocacy. Um, and of course, you know, though, though you have told your story and though you have reminded the world that detransitioners don't always appreciate being asked to rehash their story over and over, there are people who don't know you. So I do just kind of want to welcome you to give an introduction and tell your story the way you want to tell it for anyone who hasn't heard it before. Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Um, so I'll start by saying that I was a musician, basically, or, or a singer, rather, since I could speak. Like, there was recordings of me singing when I was two years old. I think my family still has them somewhere. And my whole family is very musical. So that was, like, a core part of my identity. And, like, early on, I found stress relief and it was like very therapeutic for me early on to just like bang on the piano and like I'm kind of still self-taught on the piano but I would just learn to play things by ear um and singing as well and I started writing songs when I was about nine but um you know I also had some other things in my childhood that weren't so good um I, I definitely I, I'm not sure, but I'm, well, I'm about 99% sure that I'm undiagnosed autistic and I had social problems early on. Um, like I, I was bullied a lot by the other kids. I was pretty much like the outcast kid. I would like stay inside and sing and like do paintings when the rest of the kids were interacting at recess and stuff. Um, and so definitely getting bullied was a big factor. And um, you know, I love my parents, but they, there were some issues with my home life as well when I was a kid. And, um, so at around age five, I first experienced what I would consider gender dysphoria. I, you know, I felt uncomfortable as a little girl and I started to think I'd be happier if I'd been born a boy, but I didn't learn about transgenderism until age 13 when I discovered this website and forum online for female to male people. And that was really, really significant for me. Um, because by this time I had started to develop an eating disorder. I, um, had some other mental health issues, really like crippling social, social anxiety. Um, and so I just thought, wow, this explains all of my problems. Like, of course, you know, I, I felt this way for a while that I was uncomfortable in my body. And um, it was really exciting. Like, it, it felt like, oh, okay, you know, it's, it's not what's in here that's the problem. I was actually born in the wrong body. And like, this wasn't my choice. And, um, or, or this isn't my fault. And so pretty much from that point on, I started identifying as you know, inwardly identifying as trans. And I came out to a few friends. I did come out to my parents later on as a teenager. Um, but long story short, pretty much from age like 13 to 28, I considered medicalization. Thankfully, it wasn't an option for me while I was a teenager because, you know, I could be sterile now and have like a whole a host of other issues. But um, I pretty much swung back and forth between like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to medically transition and no, like I, I, I am trans, but that isn't the right path for me, the medicalization. And then finally, when I was 28, I, I went, you know, full ham and, um, 
like took the hormones and, and started to change my name and, you know, came out publicly and everything. Um, but it was like a long process for me. And, um, honestly, looking back, I just, I wish I'd never even been introduced to this idea that, you know, there was a gendered self separate from the body. Um, I just, I, I think that idea was really damaging for me and sort of caused me to make some really unhealthy life choices. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is, is uh, so I, I feel like I, I returned from my transition relatively unscathed compared to like what some people go through because, because I was so tied to my singing voice and the testosterone was starting to ruin my singing voice. I was having pain when I would try to sing or even, you know, speaking became very painful for a while and uncomfortable. And one day when I opened my mouth and just I went to go sing a note and no sound was coming out. I was just, I was devastated. Um, like I felt like I, I didn't know how it would feel if I actually lost my voice. And it just felt like this therapeutic tool had been, you know, like the rug had been yanked out, yanked from out under me. And like, I knew my voice would get deeper, but I didn't know that like completely losing my voice or um, having pain when I tried to speak or sing, like I, I had no idea that was a possibility. So. Um, and that was kind of the catalyst for me to detransition. Um, so in some ways I'm thankful because, you know, I could have gone a lot farther. I actually had surgery scheduled and other things. Um, so yeah, now I just, it opened me up to the struggles of the detrans community. And like, um, you know, when I was transitioning, I had no idea how many detransitioners there were, or, you know, any idea what was going on. Um, so I'm glad that I'm acquainted with this community now. And I, I want to use my story and just the research that I've done to to help people and try to try to have people be more informed when they're making this decision to transition. This is going to sound so out of left field, but I'm thinking about <laughs> The Little Mermaid because I probably saw that ah. film a hundred times. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean that I watched it so many times when I was a little girl and it's it's a story of a woman selling her voice to yeah. be loved and fit in. Um, and and that's the story that I hear. And I, I was really struck by um, the part where you said that part of what was so sort of captivating about this idea was that it meant that it wasn't your fault. And I, I find myself talking about this, you know, with, with my, my clients, the parents I consult with, and, um, you know, in, in other podcast episodes. And, you know, sometimes I'm speaking on behalf of someone who is, you know, currently swept up in the ideology. And I'm speculating that I think this might be part of what's going on. And I realize that that's a little brazen, but at the same time, sometimes we have to speculate when we're trying to help people who are clearly not making sound decisions for their long-term well-being. And it's it's heartening for me, as like as sad as it is, it is it's confirming something to hear you say that 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 mm. was part of the draw of believing that you were transgender was this this belief: it's not my fault. 
I was born in the wrong body. I can't help it. So then it's the fault of, you know, however you conceive it, that would mean that it's it's nature's fault or it's God's fault or it's society's fault for stigmatizing you. And then, and it gives you this very concrete solution. So I want to kind of explore the thought process around that more um, because when, when I imagine what it's like to be a young person um, drawn to that idea, I think that... <laughs> Of, of course, that has tremendous appeal if you're coping with shame and, you know, you describe yourself as um, you, you think you have undiagnosed autism. Now, you know, for someone like me, naive and just meeting you well into adulthood, you don't strike me as autistic. Um, but I'm sure there's a lot more to the story than that. I mean, I think you do have a certain like charm and grace and um, yeah, a social grace to you that most people don't think of when they think of their sort of profile of an autistic person. Um, but I hear that that was your experience in childhood, that you felt like you were different and bullied and excluded. And those sorts of experiences, whether they are because a child is autistic or for any number of other reasons, um, you know, they could be so socioeconomic reasons or divorce or anything that could kind of put a kid in a rough social situation. But when you've been affected like that by mistreatment by your peers from a young age, um, the shame that a child can feel can just be so overwhelming. So it really makes sense that something that comes along and says it's not your fault would be really appealing. And and also it seems like the sort of concrete nature of the steps to take if you self-diagnose as trans ha has got to feel like a huge relief as well because the emotions and the psyche are very abstract and can be overwhelming, can feel chaotic and out of control. And if a kid is autistic or they just don't have a supportive environment with, you know, highly emotionally intelligent parents to help them make sense of overwhelming emotions, then um, emotions can just feel like you're like drowning in a swamp of chaos. And so when something comes in and says, here's your explanation and here's your plan, and it's so concrete as first you socially transition, new name and pronouns. Then you go to this type of doctor. Then you get this type of diagnosis and prescription. And then you start, like, it seems like that would be very kind of soothing because it gives you, like, it feels like you're in that swamp and someone, like, lowers down a ladder that you can climb. So yeah. that's sort of, like, how it intuitively seems to me. But from personal experience, what would you say about that? I think that's a pretty accurate characterization. I mean, um, Basically, thank you, by the way, for saying that I seem like socially graceful now. <laughs> um, I definitely like when I was younger, I feel like there was just there were social rules and like things that like unspoken things that you weren't supposed to do that I was just not getting. And um, like I definitely had I, I definitely had more social problems like than other kids and I had more trouble. I had more trouble making friends and keeping friends than other kids did. And the friends I had were usually like, you know, other kids with like disabilities or just, you know, kind of the artistic, quirky, um, different kind of outcast kids. Um, and I also was quite a bit more like mentally, I had stronger emotions that I won't say mentally ill yet, but I had, um, definitely stronger emotions. It felt like than other kids. And I was like, just more highly sensitive and, like 
just, I was struggling a lot more in a lot of ways. Um, and I feel like not only my parents, I, I did feel like I was drowning in my emotions because, you know, my parents are very much like, um, they're not very emotional people. Like, like they love me very much and they, they loved me when I was a kid, obviously, but they didn't know how to help me cope with that. And then because I was high functioning, like in school and I was getting good grades, the, um, the school personnel didn't, didn't recognize any problems with me. And so I didn't really have any support, like growing up, they're just like, Oh, she's fine. Um, but I was really like being bullied every day. I mean, emotionally as well as physically. Like I, I remember I was picked on by a group of girls. I was like threatened and chased into the bushes by, I was this really petite kid too. Like I was always like the run of the class. I was, I'm still really tiny, but I was even tinier, like as a kid. Um, and then in high school, like there was a boy that used to straight up attack me and like, he shoved me against a brick wall. He would like, and um, we would get like snow and he would pack it into like really hard ice and just like help me with the ice. And like, I was just really had so many social problems and, um, I, and yeah, that when you said it wasn't, I felt like when I, I got turned on to transgender ideology, it was just like, oh, well, I'm, I'm a boy trapped in a girl's body. And like, that's why I'm so awkward in my body. And like, I would be more accepted if, you know, I, I was actually in a male body. And I think because I'd been like physically bullied, um, it, it was like, I felt like I'd be safer in a male body as well. Like I'd be stronger and like actually able to defend myself. And like, I would have these dreams that someone was like punching me and I was, I was like trying to fight back. And there was just like no strength in like my punches. I used to have dreams like that all the time or like I was just running from someone and like couldn't get away while well, this got really dark. But anyway, yes, like everything you said was like, I think very accurate to at least what I experienced. Well, it's so understandable. And I know people have varying reactions when people like me say this. Like I've, I know there are detransitioners who've don't like hearing this. So let me know your reaction, honestly. But like, these are the sorts of stories that make me think I totally would have been one of those kids. Because like, I, I get it, right? I was also bullied. I also felt awkward and like I didn't belong. And um, I think I would have felt safer as a guy too. Um, I think if that idea had been introduced, because I did put up a shield. I you know, the shield that I put up was being the punk rock girl. Um, and so my personality changed pretty quickly, I think, between like eighth and ninth grade from this like shy, awkward, um, insecure, like girl who didn't know how to dress and didn't know how to eat and didn't know what kind of music was cool, like to like, F you, I'm a punk rock kid. Like, nobody can get me down. I'm going to make my hair short and spiky and purple. Like, I, you know, and for me, that was that was a shield that I put up to defend myself um, from feeling unsafe. And it was my way of saying, mm -hmm. I'm strong. You can't get me. And um, so I, that it really just intuitively makes sense that, that you had that experience and that a lot of young women might be having this experience still. And, you know, one of my sort of, I think, biggest 
sort of demographics of people who listen to this podcast are parents who are worried about their kids. And so, you know, I do hope that they can sort of learn from these conversations. Um, I know you probably hear a lot from parents who want your advice and it can be quite overwhelming, especially when you're not a therapist and you're trying to focus on your own healing and, you know, to like be a martyr and like have the answers for people is really a lot of pressure. Um, but I do think that these conversations can be helpful for people because, you know, parents ultimately who want to help their kids out of this need to understand all the functions that this belief system and identity can serve for their kids. And you can't just take those functions away. It's like it's like anything else when we deal with it in therapy. Like someone comes to therapy wanting to get rid of a bad habit. Well, we can't just eliminate that habit until we understand what purpose it's serving. And then we help find a better way of meeting that need. And then the need for the habit can fall away. So, you know, you can't just like take your kid's trans identity away from them if that's their way of feeling safe in an antagonistic world. You have to first understand that they feel unsafe and that they feel like they need something to hide behind. And then then that can maybe open the door for thinking creatively about what else you can do to help your kid feel supported. So I appreciate you taking the time to explore that with me, Pat. Was there anything you more that you wanted to say about sort of that part of your story in particular before we move on? Um, qu just quickly, um, this is more looking at the bigger picture, but I feel like just our school system, you know, back then and today, is just such a dog-eat-dog -dog world. Like, I feel like it's really, really damaging for, you know, sense kids who are highly sensitive or and or autistic. Um, and I, I feel like it's no wonder that kids like that are drawn into transgender ideology. Um, I mean, back when I was that age too, it was, it was more like the whole, you know, the self-harm movement was more all the rage back then. Like I just happened to discover this like transgender forum online, but like, you know, back then it wasn't even like today where it's, you know, kids are coming out at school and like being affirmed by their teachers and stuff like it wasn't like that at all but I just um I wish there was some way we could reform the school system so it it wasn't just like you know I, I feel like my parents were dropping me off at school and I was just being thrown to the wolves and you know back then when I would talk to principals or anything or teachers it's like they're kind of just like take care of it yourself and I don't know if that has changed but um Anyway, yeah, I just, I, I think the way school is even set up is damaging to kids. I think I'm imagining from what I hear that in some ways that dynamic has not changed and in other ways it's swung the opposite direction. Like there was um, a story that Deb Philman shared with me and I can't remember if it was on her podcast or mine because um, Deb, host of The Reason We Learn, we've both been on each other's shows. But, you know, she talked about a situation where her daughter was being kind of creeped on by a boy who wasn't good at picking up on her cues that she wasn't interested in him. And when the girl eventually set a firmer boundary and had to be explicit about, I don't really want to be your friend. Can you please leave me alone? Um, her daughter got in trouble when it got taken to the school staff because they like the message is all about inclusivity these days. And that means oh, everyone goodness. has to be friends with everyone, which like, I don't think that's good modeling either. I think you know, ultimately, what is what's a healthy adult response? If we think about like how parenting and school should help 
guide kids toward independence, toward being able to handle these things well as an adult. So as an adult, when you're moving through the world, you encounter people you like, people you don't like. You have different types of chemistry with different people. Sometimes it's just an energy thing. It could be the way they smell. You know, it could be <laughs> that they they remind you of someone you don't like. It could, you know, there's all kinds of reasons. But um, but what do you do is you just um, polite and and then you avoid each other. Like that's all it really takes, right? Just have like some basic, basic dignity <laughs> standard of conduct and then you just keep your distance. And I feel like um, – kids aren't really being told that that's an option and they're not being guided in learning that behavior. It's like either you have to um, have all this drama or everyone is forced to be friends. And that's just not natural because, you know, Mm -mm. and a lot of people, you know, like Amy Sousa, who's also been on my show and I've been on hers, has, you know, some really great points she makes about how um, our instincts exist for a reason to protect us. And, um, you know, any ideology that tries to get you to override your personal natural instincts is something that it's, you know, we should at least be wary of and we should examine why would anyone want to decondition us from trusting our instincts. Um, so, you know, the instinct to, to gravitate towards certain people and not towards others, I think that's something to be respected. But yeah, I mean, the pendulum has, has swung from Absolutely. one direction to the other in situations where that is the dynamic. Um, but I'm imagining that it's still all over the map. And I would generally agree with you that highly sensitive, weird, awkward kids um, <laughs> aren't doing well. <laughs> they weren't doing well when I was growing up or when you were growing up and they're not doing well today. Yeah. Um, so may I ask how old you are? I actually don't know. I'm 31. Okay. So yeah. Um, so when you were 13 and this all started, that was 18, 2004. 2004. That was really mm-hmm. early um, compared yeah. to. <laughs> and um, so it was only three years ago when you were 28 that you went on hormones. And how long were you on testosterone? Um, I socially transitioned in 2019, um, but I, I started hormones in 2020 and I was on them for four months, but I had previously, um, my story is so long, like it's a saga, but when I was 23, I also had started testosterone and I did one, one dose and I got so freaked out by it by, because they don't do it for you. You have to, you're just like, you do it. They tell you how to do it and you do it yourself. Um, and I was like, just so scared. I was going to hit a vein or like, I was literally like, feeling like I was going to have a heart attack and like, it just, it was unpleasant. I like, um, they gave me this like mega dose. It was like a hundred milligrams or something. And so I, I just did like the one mega dose. And then I was like, you know what? Like I, I, you know, that was one of the times that I was, I like desisted after that. I was like, yeah, this life isn't for me. I still have dysphoria, but like I, you know, the injections, like I, like, I don't want to do this every week, um, for the rest of my life. And, uh, but then at 28, again, it's like, I was, you know, I think what happened is like, I had a really, really unhealthy relationship, um, with a man. And I, I think subconsciously I was coping with some of those feelings by like, you know, the dysphoria kind of resurfaced and just my, 
really a obsession and intense desire to transition kind of came back and it hadn't really been there since like earlier on, but I was, you know, it, it had always kind of been there bubbling under the surface, like just not really feeling comfortable as a woman and, um, not feeling comfortable in my body, feeling like just everything about my body was wrong. And like, um, but it, yeah, after that breakup, it just kind of overwhelmed me. And like shortly after that, I, you know, socially transitioned and like started taking the hormones. Um, but yeah, I was only on testosterone for a few months, but I think if anything, my story really speaks to the fact that taking hormones for any amount of time is going to be somewhat irreversible. Like, you know, even only, I guess taking it for about five months total with, you know, my stint when I was 23. Um, but you know, even that short of time, it's like, you know, my voice came down here and it didn't used to sound like this at all. Wow. I didn't used to be able to do this at all. <laughs> it sounds weird to do it now. Cause like, it's, I, I, I like retrained voice my voice. Went. My voice is very low. Like, um, my most comfortable like singing range is a baritone and people just laugh at me when I say that, like they don't believe me, but, but it is, um, like my voice is actually very low and this happened within like four months and like, um, people don't believe me until I actually sing something by like Frank Sinatra or like when I first detransitioned, I could do like Johnny Cash in the original key. That's like now a little low for me, but I fell into a burning ring of fire but anyway, yeah, I could go like pretty low. Um, but I mean, yeah, it was, I mean, I laugh at it now, but like, it was really, really, um, shocking. And like, uh, now because I can now also sing high again now, like I've retrained to be able to do that. Um, like it's, I think it's, I actually like my low notes, but back then it's like, I was just devastated because I felt like just the voice I'd known all my life, like rapidly went away and it was this like raspy uncomfortable um croaky voice and you know I always had this like really light and smooth and like you know people would always tell me like how beautiful my voice was and it just like and I actually hated that at that time because like I, I wanted to have like more power in my voice like I wanted to sound you know more masculine and I couldn't really do it um but then when my voice changed, it was like, it just sounded so, the tonal quality was like so ugly to me. And I would look at my, like, I'm a music producer too. And so I'd record my voice and you, you could actually visibly see the dissonant harmonics in my voice, um, like in the software, which I was going to do a video on that. Um, but yeah, it was just really, really fast. And, you know, people are always like, well, didn't you know your voice would change? And I'm like, yeah, I did, but but not like that. I mean, this was like something else. Um, and it was, yeah, it was really traumatic and devastating. And I, I don't think people, unless you've actually been through that, I, I just don't think people get it. If you were to come to me as a client and tell me you were feeling grumpy, irritable, lethargic, stressed out, or unfocused, I'd want to do a thorough assessment of your lifestyle. And one of the first elements we'd look at is the quality and quantity of your sleep. You need at least a good seven hours of refreshing sleep every night in order to be your best self. There are many things that can get in the way of that. A demanding job, a new baby, or just plain bad habits, for example. 
But if you're having difficulty falling or staying asleep for the simple reason that you're too hot, you're too cold, or you and your partner don't agree on the temperature, look no further. I have just the thing for you. And since this is not therapy, but a podcast, I can actually sell you stuff. So I'm going to genuinely recommend that you check out the Pod Pro Cover by 8sleep. It's the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. Personally, I have mine set to run on autopilot so that my bed is warm when I get in, cool in the middle of the night, and warm again when it's time to wake up. I sleep very soundly this way. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being, the quality of your work, and the lives of the people you touch. So go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout for up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And to my listeners around the world, 8sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the United Kingdom, select countries in the European Union, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. You know, when you describe the sort of the initial desire for that vocal change when you're coming from a naive and hopeful place, it reminds me of some of the thought process that I observed when I was still working um, with uh, trans-identified youth Um, and some of the things that I hear from my, you know, the parents that I work with about the kids that they're worried about, where it seems like there's this um, sort of fantasy that by taking these hormones, you can get a very precise result. Like you're like, well, I imagine that my voice will sound exactly like this and my facial hair will grow like this. And um, and what we all know who've studied this, these issues or, or been through it is that you really actually don't know how quickly which changes will take place. Like some some women who take testosterone will have male pattern baldness and others won't. And you don't know until it's too late. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, and it just reminds me of, you know, all of the things that we as women have been dealing with for generations since before this became an issue that has definitely been made worse by social media. But there's always this sort of fantasy of I want to look like her. I want my boobs to be bigger and my stomach to be flatter. I want to be taller with longer legs. I want my hair to be straight if it's curly and curly if it's straight. And, you know, there's that sort of grass is always greener. I'm not okay the way I am. I want what someone else has mentality. And it it seems like with some of the ideation around the trans stuff, like some of that classic pattern that many women grew up with and and know all too well from our own sort of adolescence um, has taken this new form. And it took it earlier for you than for a lot of people because you were part of that kind of earlier wave in the early 2000s. But does it bear that same resemblance to you or do you think about it differently? No, it definitely does. Um, Like as I briefly mentioned before, like I also was developing an eating disorder at the same time that I discovered gender ideology. And I feel like over the years, it would flip flop back and forth between I don't like my body, my body's too fat um, to like, 
I don't like my body. My body's too feminine. Mm-hmm. And it would, and the behaviors would just kind of, it's, it's like when you try to cure an addiction and like you cure that one thing, but like another one pops up somewhere else. If you're not actually addressing like the deeper issues. And that was what was happening with the transitioning. Like my obsessive mind would just switch from like, you know, I'm, I'm going to control my eating and, you know, do these eating disorder behaviors versus like, I need to get on testosterone. Like, you know, I want to get top surgery. I want to, you know, I'm going to do all this stuff to myself and like, then I'll be happy. Um, and I mean, on, like I said before, like, I'm so relieved that I was not, that I was in the earlier wave and that it wasn't 2013 or 2017 or that I was like a trans teenager because, um, I mean, you know, if the doctors had told I actually was in quite a bit of eating disorder treatment and similarly to how transition is being treated now, there were a lot of really experimental methods of treating eating disorders that were like touted as like, oh, this has like a 90% or 99% success rate. Um, and like, you know, like those, basically there were the the really expensive, like nice treatment centers and stuff. And like, just certain therapeutic models that I actually think triggered me more. I mean, like these centers like physically saved my life, but in terms of like the tools they gave me, um, I I feel like a lot of it just triggered me more and didn't actually like help me. And, um, you know, similarly with the gender affirmation, it's just, um, yeah, you're not actually being given the proper tools to deal with the underlying issues. And for me, that was meditation. And, you know, I still practice meditation every day. And um, it's like, you can't really sugarcoat it. At the end of the day, it's like, you have to basically challenge yourself and question yourself and like, you know, question your beliefs about yourself. And that's like, really, really painful. Um, And it's not like easy to do. And for me, like meditation kind of enabled me to do that. Um, Anyway, I've been rambling for a while, but um, yes, I think the two are absolutely comparable. Well, and I, I'd like to get more into the things that you found helpful and how, how your meditation practice has helped you. But before we go there, you know, you mm-hmm. talked about the eating disorder and sort of the body dysmorphia that kept taking these different forms. And, you know, I've I definitely think, and a lot of people have said about you that you're a strikingly beautiful woman. And you also describe that you've always been very petite. So, you know, to sort of the average observer, you, the average person wouldn't guess that someone of your build would think that she's too fat, for example. But I, I keep telling parents that I work with, do not use your own standard of how beautiful you think your daughter is as a gauge as to whether she has body image issues. (laughs) Like your daughter could be so beautiful to you and still think she's fat or too much of this or not enough of that or would be better if she this or that. And it does seem to me from talking with various detransitioners and like I'm thinking about, for example, Chloe Cole's interview with Jordan Peterson, where she talked about how um, she went from feeling like she was not attractive enough as a girl to feeling like she'd be better off as a boy. And that might seem paradoxical to people who are like, well, if she wants to be a boy, why does she care what she looks like as a girl? But it does seem to me like a lot of these things are not rational. And like the insecurity about being pretty enough or skinny enough or whatever enough 
as a girl does kind of feed into, well, I'll never be a girl anyway. I'd be happier as a boy. Does it seem that way to you? Totally. Um, you know, I saw that interview and I actually related to her a lot on that. Um, it was a little different in, in back in my day um, because like we didn't have, we didn't even have Instagram back then or TikTok <laughs> or anything. It was like early days of beginning days of social media. Like I think MySpace popped up like, what was it? Oh, four or oh, five. Um, but um, basically like I would try really hard to be this like idealized version of a girl like how society wanted me to be as a girl and I would fail every time like you know I I would see these images of like you know I think like Victoria's Secret model or you know just these like two perfect images of like bodies and like very sexualized images as as well and you know that fed into my eating disorder and wanting to lose weight and then it would flip-flop and I would be like wow, I'm really miserable as a girl. And it's like, well, of course you're miserable as a girl because it's like you're doing all these things that like make you miserable and aren't helping you. And then I would sort of like, <laughs> I guess, let myself go a little bit. And like I would, whenever I would start eating again, I'd like instantly start dressing like a boy as well. Because I'd be like, well, I'm not even going to be a girl at all. Like I'm a boy. I'm going to, you know, eat a ton and like work out and build a bunch of muscle. And like, then I was going for this like idealized, like male image. And it was a very tumultuous and like confusing time. Um, and it's not rational at all, but it all stems from just like, you know, not feeling loved, not feeling accepted, um, not feeling comfortable in your body and kind of transmuting your psychological and social discomfort into your body like my body is the problem so yeah mm. yeah it's like they all what they all have in common is a lack of self-acceptance mm -hmm. and when you talked about being a guy you talked on the one hand about like I'm gonna get super jacked but on the other hand there's this, like I can eat whatever I want and something I've observed again from you know, working with parents who are concerned about their children is that it, it just strikes me like the way that their daughters take refuge in this masculine identity is like, as a guy, I can be slovenly, I can be lazy, um, I can wear the same old ratty t-shirt for the third day in a row, I can belch and fart and I, I don't have to have manners. I don't have to be considerate of other people. I don't have to be graceful. Um, I don't have to worry about my appearance. And it seems like it seems like there's this sort of pendulum swing for these girls where, like, as a girl, you can never try hard enough. You can spend hours a day on your makeup or in the gym. Um, you can spend hundreds, hundreds of dollars a month on your hair and eyelashes and wardrobe um, and you'll never measure up or you can let all that go and be a quote unquote guy and just do whatever the fuck you want and let it all hang out. And I mean, if <laughs> I felt like I was under that much pressure too, I I can totally see the appeal of that. I'd be like, what's the point? I can, I can never live up to this. And, and I did want to ask you, um, 
you know, for some of these girls, sometimes the way it comes across to me through their behavior and through the, the things that their parents tell me they are saying at home, it seems sometimes like it's not really so much about being a guy, like in the positive sense of actively being a guy, as much as it is about not being a girl. So I want to kind of run that by you. Like, how did that land? That's an interesting question because a lot of people have posited it to me that like, because I was running from being a girl rather than wanting, rather than embracing being a guy, that means I was never really trans. But I mean, it's like, you can't really, you can't run towards something else without running away from what you've been. And, you know, recently the whole idea of non-binaries become a thing more, but like, you know, when I was a kid, it was like, I mean, I did hear the word genderqueer, but like, I'd never seen an actual person that identified that way. Or like, it just seemed really weird to me. Um, <laughs> and like, I was, um, I had started going to support groups. Um, this was by the time I was like 17 and able to drive, but I, I was like driving a couple towns over to go to these like trans support groups. And like, there wasn't anybody there that was genderqueer. Like it was all like trans guys and trans girls. And um, I mean, I, I feel like at that point, I mean, there, there's only two options, you know, like there's girl or guy. And so by running from one, it's like you sort of automatically embrace the other. And it's, it's like, it's all based on stereotypes, right? So, I mean, when you think about men in real life, when you think about men in real life, it's like, um, you know, they're not just like sloppy and disgusting all the time. Like men actually have different expectations that they have to live up to. Like with women, it's way more appearance based and like our appearance is like way more heavily scrutinized in general. But like, you know, with men, it's like professionally and like, you know, financially and like in different ways, like they are judged way more harshly if like they don't have like their stuff together. So um, it's not like men are just like, what the word you use slovenly? Like I, you know, it's just it's such a dichotomy, and it's like very, very much based on like stereotypes and not how things really are in real life. Well, I agree with you, and I, I think many level-headed people would agree that there are <laughs> certainly standards for men and pressures on men, but I wonder. I wonder about that for for the younger people whether they sort of perceive that and how many how many trans identified young women would um really want to sign up for that <laughs> like really want to sign up for the social expectations of the masculine gender role um well both yeah um both sides i mean it's like the men who are transitioning to women and vice versa it's like they don't actually want to be treated exactly like how the other sex would be treated it's like they want to they want to it's like honestly a new gender role it's it's a different gender role for like trans guy versus trans girl it's like you know i mean like one thing i learned uh through my journey is like you know men can be a lot more they can tease each other a lot more and kind of like they're kind of, uh, there's like banter a lot more than there is like between women, you know? And it's like, you can't be like really, really sensitive if you're actually going to be 
like one of the boys, I guess, you know, and it's like, but this whole trans movement is like, sensitivity is like, a big part of it, you know, it's like, this whole thing of like, really caring about how others perceive you and like, um, trying to control everybody's perception and control people's language and like, control the social dynamic like that is like, not stereotypically like that that's very different than how a stereotypical male would act um and similarly with like trans women it's like a lot of them you know more so than like the average woman and I'm talking in averages here not every single person you know um but like they tend to be a lot more they tend to be louder and like advocate for themselves a lot more and um you know, in a way that's like, and, and, you know, just the whole, and I'm not saying all trans women at all, but there is this certain percentage that really is trying to, they put getting into women's bathrooms and women's spaces, like that is very high on the agenda for them. And they're very pushy about that um, in a way that isn't really common in in women, you know, um, so you notice these differences between someone who's like identifying as trans versus just like your average guy or girl, if that makes sense. I know I'm like again going by stereotypes, but well, no, yeah. I mean you are you're saying the quiet part out loud, but it need, <laughs> it is a conversation that needs to be had because, um, you know, you and I reject these ideas, but and and we've each come to that through our own obviously very different process, but. You know, if if we were to remotely entertain the notion that a man can become a woman or vice versa, how are we defining woman? Well, you know, the trans rights activists use very circular logic. A woman is anyone who says she's a woman, right? Like, but okay, if there is such a thing as man and woman and it's dependent on any, if, if the definition is dependent on anything other than our biological sex, should we look to gender roles? Should we look to norms of that sex? especially if you're going to use ideas like male brain and a female body, which of course there's no evidence base for. Right. But, but, you know, if we were to go there, if we were to entertain those ideas, then maybe we should consider typical sex differences between men and women and consider whether some standards can be held for a man who says he's a woman truly acting like one, which would honestly be to be a lot more deferential polite, considerate of the needs of others. I mean, there's nothing you can do to a male body or to a male identity to give him a mom brain, right? We, that hardwired instinct as not even just human women, but as mammalian females, right? Um, the instinct to nurture life. These, these differences are so hardwired, but even if you're to set aside everything you know about biology and suspend disbelief, there's still a question of like, okay, well, if you say you're a woman, then why are you not saying, oops, I'm sorry, and excuse me more? Why are you not moving out of this other person's way? Why are you not asking if people need anything or, you know, softening your voice to make sure you're not talking over other people? Because guess what? This is all part of not only female socialization, but some of the hardwired instinct to be agreeable, conscientious, and nurturing. <laughs> so like, you know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I don't Sorry, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off there. No, it's okay. I know we're we're offending, I mean, most people who are <laughs> offended by this aren't listening this far to my podcast, but Well, 
Well, I, I, I want to put a little qualifier on it. Um, and, you know, Jordan, Jordan Peterson's a very controversial figure, um, as if we weren't canceled enough already, but, um, and I don't agree with everything he says. Um, there's, there's actually a lot I don't agree with, but, um, one thing he said that I think was just explained incredibly well is the idea of, of population averages versus the individual, right? right? So you have with each trait, um, like, you know, aggression it would be like one let's let's just say so it's like I I think it's something like 20% of women will be like as aggressive as the average man type of thing and like and most men aren't overly aggressive but like the top like two percent of aggressiveness like you know people that engage in like violent crime for instance most of them are going to be male because like because very few women are going to be that high on like the aggressiveness scale. And that's not to say it doesn't happen. And clearly like there are, you know, there are like female criminals and stuff, but it's, it happens like less frequently. And, you know, like I do think like gender nonconforming people um, do exist and they're, they're born that way. And, you know, I don't know, I, I don't think that means they're in the wrong body, but I think it, it I means am. that they, you know, the way their brain is wired or whatever's going on biologically, they just don't fit social gender roles. Like, and, you know, nobody fits them perfectly. Like we're all different degrees of like gender nonconforming. Um, um, and depending on like what era it is too, like the idea of gender changes and, you know, the roles change over time and in different cultures, but it's, it's like, yeah, when you think about it as like, yes, there are going to be average differences across the population and we can't ignore those like there is a huge body of research on that um you know i i think there's one study with like 80,000 people <laughs> across like hundreds of countries um i wish i knew that like i remember the author's names but i did a video on it like a while back and so yeah there's these population averages um but when it comes to the individual like we shouldn't assume like this individual is going to be you know, passive and like agreeable and like, you know, that person's all of these things just because they're a woman. But yes, like there are observable average differences. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I would like to shift gears because there's so much Mm -hmm. other important ground to cover. So um, earlier you mentioned that meditation has been really Mm -hmm. beneficial to you. It's become a part of your daily practice. I believe I've also heard you say elsewhere that, um, well, you were starting to say today um, that losing your voice was a, an alarming moment for you, that things started to change. And I think what I've heard you say elsewhere is that you prayed for your voice to come back. So I'd love to hear more about whatever you feel comfortable sharing about the role that spirituality, like prayer and meditation, um, as well as the role of art and music have have played in helping you sort of heal thank you i would love to answer that question (laughs) um you know a lot of times when you bring up meditation like people tend to tune out um and i don't know for me i've always been drawn to meditation like i i think i started meditating when i was like 14 i went to this meditation with my aunt and i thought it was just really awesome and i was like i should do this every day and then i didn't until like my twenties, you know? Um, but a few years ago I started going to Vipassana meditation retreats. They're like silent 10 day retreats. They're really intense. Um, 
but I just, I mean, it's, it was really a life-changing experience. It's, it's hard to describe if, if you haven't um, actually experienced it, but when you're that quiet for that long, you really start to get in tune with some really deep truths about yourself and your reality. Um, and so I actually was meditating during my whole trans journey. And I, and I do think it was um, part of the reason why I was able to stop when I did. And I was able to find like healthier coping mechanisms um, for what I was going through. I think it like grounded me and, and kept me like in touch with myself. And so one thing that came out during the meditation was like I had been doing these injections and uh, of testosterone, and like I had lots of trans friends and people online like affirming me and telling me it was healthy and it was it was you know life saving healthcare and all this stuff. I was also, you know, I got basically no pushback like from the doctor. Like she didn't tell me it was unhealthy. She actually like fast tracked me to start it. Um, I think she just said oh, if you smoke with it, that's really bad. Like, you know, it's going to be like really bad for your heart. So like, don't smoke cigarettes. Um, but I mean, I think a study just came out that it, it's like, you have like a seven times higher risk of heart attack for, for um, someone who takes cross-sex hormones. Like it's significant greater health risks. But anyway, um, like I, I was sitting in my meditation and I just felt this sort of like, it all I can all I can describe it is like my it's like the inner part of myself that was like the parent of myself or like or, or like the the higher self sort of came in and was sort of like I'm feeling really sad that you're harming yourself and like I hadn't been feeling like I was harming myself like I felt like this is what I need to do like you know I'm a man and like this is the only way to get there this is the only way to you know get over this dysphoria and um it was it was a very like masculine energy like i'm going to go forward with this no matter what i'm going to do this and this was like a very kind of feminine energy kind of came in and was like just like a loving like mother or grandmother or something kind of a feeling and was like you know there's no judgment like like i love you no matter what but this is harming your body and that makes me really sad um and it just like broke my heart like um i just it, it felt like a really deep and like important part of myself that I'd been like neglecting. And so that's when I decided, um, and you know, this was after I had started to lose my singing voice and everything, but I, I was like, yeah, I just can't continue with this. Like, I mean, I was given this healthy body. Like this was, I also felt like my body was a gift, like having a body that I don't have to normally do injections or get surgeries or anything naturally. Like, and obviously for the people who need that, like, I'm not, I'm not saying anything bad, like, or ableist about that, you know, but like going from like not having to inject yourself for the rest of your life to like being tied to this like irreversible path of medicalization. It's just, um, I realize there's some insanity in that. Um, and so, yeah, I feel like my meditation practice really facilitated those insights and that they did happen earlier on than they probably would have if I hadn't been doing that.
Wow, that's really beautiful. Thank you for sharing. I know that's that's a you know a sacred moment um, between yourself and your higher power, however you conceive it. So I just really appreciate you um, sharing that that sacred moment of some you know divine nurturing voice coming through just in the way that you needed it to. And I appreciate too you highlighting sort of the the sanctity and the gratitude that this body is a gift and. Um, and I think it's so easy to abuse your body when you're young and you feel invincible and you don't know what it's like. And, you know, here I am like a year yeah. plus into my chronic illness. And I mean, I, my personal feelings, I'm just going to talk about myself for a second. Um, like I, I look at all the people who have healthy bodies that could be exercising and just aren't choosing to exercise right now. And like, I would do anything to trade places with them. Like if, if I was able to exercise if I had the energy to, and if it wouldn't aggravate my condition, I would I would do anything to have the privilege of being able to make my body stronger right now. Um, and I think, you know, many of us who are concerned about this trans stuff, we, we do that based on wisdom and life experience because we know what it's like to have chronic pain or disability of some kind. And it's it's not it's not pretty, it's not fun. It's um, not to be taken lightly, and we wouldn't wish it upon our worst enemy. And so um, it's no surprise to me that this ideology is most appealing to young people who just are able to take their body for granted. Not to say that no young people who are drawn to this stuff have ever faced any kind of illness or injury. Obviously, I'm not saying that. But, like, it is such a gift to have a healthy body, even if it's not perfect, even if it doesn't look the way you want it to look, or even if it's not the sex that you sometimes wish you were born as. And um, it does seem like, you know, there is kind of this this element of the sacred that came in, um, this sort of grace that came to you in the form of this nurturing sort of maternal voice. And I hear too that element of the sacred in recognizing that the body you have as imperfect as it is, if you're going to look at it from a certain angle, is still a gift and a blessing to be cherished, not to be abused, not to be made into your enemy. And I'm just really grateful for that grace coming into your life. Thank you. Um, it's, you know, I don't really talk about the spiritual stuff a lot because um, I'm kind of a strange dichotomy because I have a science background. and but But I honestly feel like for me, it's like I wanted to science was like me wanting to understand more about the world and ourselves and like the inner workings of things. So it was like kind of a spiritual pursuit. Um, it, it was a scientific spiritual <laughs> pursuit kind of. But the other part you asked about that I wanted to touch on really quick, which is the prayer. So um, like I'm not I, 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 I'm, I don't belong to like any one denomination. Like I'm, I'm not. I'm spiritual, not religious. I know that's a cliche, but like, um, but I do believe in like a higher consciousness and I basically, I, I, you know, I practice manifestation and like directing your thoughts in a positive way. And part of that is like not growing attached to things. It's sort of just like kind of putting your request out there to the universe um, or source or whatever, you know, you want to, or consciousness, whatever you want to think of it as. And then like, you know, if it happens, it happens. And if, if not, you just have to kind of say, okay, like that wasn't for me and, and like, let it go. And so 
you know, I, I had to like fully grieve my voice and be like, yeah, you know, I, I might not be able to be a singer. Like I'm, I'm going to have to pick something else, you know, that, that might happen or, you know, I, I'm, but I'm just going to pause my judgment on this. You know, I, I'm not going to let my mind wander down this road of despair. Like, oh, my life's purpose is ruined or like, you know, any of the dark corners I was going down. Um, and yeah, my voice actually has come back. It's, it's different than it used to be. Um, but I actually like, I, I love my voice now and I'm, I'm getting more, more and more comfortable with it. And, um, you know, like I said, I've learned to love like the, the lower parts of my range again. And, uh, like I, I don't really regret my decision. I, I mean, I, I wish I would have been more informed and that I would have gone into this knowing all of the possible issues and just not being told I would, you know, off myself if I didn't do it. And just all this misinformation that I went into it with, I wish I didn't have that. But at the same time, like, I think I got to where I am today because of where I've been. Um, but yeah, my spirituality was like a huge part of my recovery from gender dysphoria. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's not something I talk about a lot. As a therapist, I've gotten an up close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out. Turns out it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well-being like diet and exercise. But as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done. People often set goals that are too lofty only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organifi makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water. 100% organic with no added sugar, and it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti-inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and 3 grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving your cells the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at Organifi.com. That's spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com. And use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to get 20% off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you. Well, and it's, it is precious, right? And I think that, you know, I also, I guard my spirituality um, because it is such a, it's that precious innermost part of us and humans can be nasty and vicious and cruel and cast judgment. And I do believe that those things have an impact. Um, so I just appreciate mm -hmm. that you felt safe enough to share that part of yourself with me as well. And I'm always kind of navigating like, what is the right balance for me moment to moment with regard to um, sharing that part of me if I feel called to share it or if I think it might be helpful to other people, um, but also like not casting pearls before swine 
or, you know, opening myself up to yeah. ridicule any more than I already do. Because there are a lot of people who would like to tell me how to be. <laughs> um, Absolutely. So, so I realize we've been talking for a full hour and haven't even talked about transition justice yet. I'm, <laughs> I'm excited to see that you are the face of transition justice. I first came across them on Instagram and I'm glad to see they're on Twitter as well. Um, so tell us about what is transition, transitions justice. Wow. I can't talk transition justice. (laughs) What is it and what's, what's the mission and the future direction? Yeah. So transition justice, oh my gosh, it's rubbing off on me. (laughs) Transition justice is a nonprofit organization that is meant to connect detransitioners or really anyone who's been harmed by gender medicine, you know, no matter if they still identify as, you know, something, something other, um, you know, anyone who's been harmed by experimental gender medicine, uh, we want to connect them with attorneys who can help them. And I think right now our main approach is malpractice. Um, It's sort of the angle that like most of the attorneys are taking, but there's so many different angles to approach this from. And so we're, you know, we're trying to like just broaden our network of different lawyers and like just basically learn as we go. Cause this is an emerging, this is an emerging field right now as more and more detransitioners come forward. I don't really, I don't think anyone ever, I mean, it's essentially the largest medical scandal in history. Um, and it's only going to get larger as like more and more of these kids are instantly affirmed and, you know, more and more younger people and people with mental illnesses and just, you know, all kinds of comorbidities are being affirmed. Like, I mean, it's, it's kind of scary, but it's just when I look 10 or 20 years down the few, 20 years into the future, it's just, we're going to have so many people with disabilities, like because of this, Um, and it's, I mean, it's just crazy to think about, but they're definitely going to need legal help. Um, and, and I think these providers, I think holding providers accountable for negligent medicine, um, and damaging medicine, I I think it's really an effect. It's going to be a very effective strategy for stopping this process of just fast tracking people into medicalization. I think if they actually see that there's consequences for this, they might actually look deeper into the science and look at its shortcomings um, rather than just continuing to propagate this narrative of, you know, gender affirmation is what's best and, you know, only 1% detransition and all these other myths that are being thrown around right now. Yeah, well, it's it's great work that you're doing. I'm so heartened to see that there are more lawyers stepping up and hearing that calling um, because you're right. This is only, sadly, tragically, it's going to get worse. I mean, you know, it's because you and I know the reality of what these um, drugs and surgeries do to people that sort of gives us the power to keep going against all of the opposition that we face because it really is a matter of time. It's it's just this ticking time bomb with how harmful um, these these drugs and surgeries really are. And um, I do mm-hmm. very much want justice for this community. Um, I'm wondering if we can maybe go over some like 
frequently asked questions um, that you've encountered in your advocacy work um, or your work for transition justice. Like one thing I've witnessed as I um, sort of witness detransitioners on social media sharing their story and going through their process is like, um, like an unstable shifting um, relationship with like how much personal responsibility to take. So, um, and I think that's a really complex issue. Of course, I'm seeing it from this totally different angle. For one, because I'm older. Like, I remember a time that this was not a thing. And for two, because I am a mental health professional and I know how things are supposed to go and, like, the standards of care prior to the takeover of all this or the basically the standard of care for how we're expected to treat any other issue. And so because I'm rooted in those things, because I have an understanding of developmental psychology and um, and maleficent influence on people's psychology, um, my stance is it's absolutely not your fault. And nobody should have let this happen to you. It doesn't matter how deluded you were or how desperate you were or how much you thought you want. Like, it's the fault of the professionals for making this a standard for ushering mm-hmm. you along this path, right? But, But at the same time, like, I have to respect people's process if they feel that it's helpful or right for them on some level to say, nope, this is my mistake. I fucked up. I'm the one who ultimately made these choices. Um, And I can see how maybe that feels like psychologically beneficial for them because when you take responsibility for your own mistakes, then you're finding that inner locus of control and then you can kind of properly grieve it in your relationship with yourself in a way that maybe if you blame someone else, you feel like maybe you're not, maybe you feel like blaming someone else would not be supportive of your goals in terms of overall maturing, or maybe you feel like blaming someone else would just keep you in a state of anger and rage and helplessness and nihilism, despair. And you actually feel like it's more empowering to say, nope, it's all, it's all my fault. Um, and I'm not saying that those are the only two options. I think most detransitioners I've, I've witnessed have like vacillated between those two and the whole spectrum in between. Um, but I'm wondering in your role, Kat, in talking with other detransitioners and in supporting transition justice, what are your observations and reflections on this sort of pattern of like, well, why should I hold someone else accountable? They were just doing what they were told. It's my fault. I chose this. Right. Um, well, that reminds me of like, you know, the Nazi officers that were just like, well, I was just following orders. You know what I mean? Like, I I think the doctors, I I think the providers that are doing, I mean, it boggles my mind, honestly, because I have a science background, you know, and um, I mean, even when I was taking certain classes, um, certain biology classes, I mean, like there were in biochemistry classes, like there were certain things that I was like, Hmm, like I, I wonder if this could be unhealthy, you know, but it was never presented that that way to me. And I guess um I didn't re- like because one of the major arguments is like, um, well, your body already makes testosterone and estrogen. So, you know, just taking a little higher of that, like, is is like not a big deal. And I, I think that's what I'd heard from activists. And, you know, I'd had doctors who readily prescribed me testosterone, like it was no big deal. So I, I think I had this like cognitive dissonance with my education, but in terms of like personal responsibility, um, I fall closer to the first position you mentioned for sure, which is that um, I don't think my transition was my fault. I think that I, starting at age 13, I encountered 
a lot of really harmful information that was presented as fact. And then like at my university, especially, which was, so I had gone back to um, my university, like shortly before transitioning um, at age 28. um, And just the ideology was very heavily promoted and like put up on a pedestal as well. Like you are a bad person if you don't support this, like, you know, um, like very socially reinforced. So, um, and then I just, you know, I, like, I don't really think that, um, I don't think my mental illness or like the trauma that happened to me earlier in life, it was my fault either. Um, like I don't exactly feel like a victim either. Like I, I don't have like a victim mentality where I'm like, oh, you know, because I think a, a component of the victim mentality is like, well, I'm just going to behave this way because, you know, I have all this trauma and like, you know, I'm just going to, so I guess that's the part that I, that I do take accountability for a little bit is, um, like just feeling like I have this part of me that's unfixable. So, oh, well, you know, I like, I mean, cause transition is really a coping mechanism and it, and it's, I mean, it is, it's, it's essentially self-harm, you know, it was, it was me channeling my self-harm that at one point it was an eating disorder. And at one point it was, um, I wouldn't say I was addicted to alcohol, but I was drinking in, in excess to cope with uncomfortable emotions. And my transition was another coping mechanism. So I think when you kind of shut down self-reflection and you're just like, I have trauma and I'm just going to act like this. I have no choice. Like I, I, I take accountability for that, like falling into that mindset. But, um, I mean, I do, you know, professionals are supposed to know better than you are. And like, based on like my education, even, which is like way less than you would have with medical school. It's like, there has to be like a chapter on ethics in like medical school. And it's like, if there's all these studies coming out that are claiming like sterilizing children is, what we're supposed to be doing and you know this whole thing oh well they'll commit suicide if you know if you don't affirm them and you don't give them what they want it's like that seems like it should pop up as a red flag and some of them i'm sure are afraid of losing their license um but even that it's just like okay would you rather lose your license or have this person like irreparably damaged by the medical field you know for the rest of their life so um you know, I do blame the providers. I blame the activists who are like really lobbying for this and pushing this. I, of course, blame like the pharmaceutical industry who are actually funding a lot of trans research. Um, so I, th- I think it's like a much bigger issue. And like, it's amazing to me when I see these comments that are just like, well, you made the choice to transition. So it's, you know, it's all your fault. And it's like, a trans, like, you know, there's been some trans people lately that had like botched top surgery or something and they're but they still identify as trans and they come forward and they say I had this horrible experience with top surgery and it's just the whole community is like so you know supportive and and like oh I'm so sorry you had that experience but then the minute you say you're a detransitioner and I had this experience it's like it couldn't have been the provider it had to be you because you detransition and like yeah like otherwise like reasonable people that victim blame detransitioners like it's really mind-boggling to me So um, in terms of more questions that I imagine you might face at Transition Justice, um, you did mention statute of limitations. Now, I understand those laws are 
first of all, you're not a lawyer. Um, and second of all, those laws are really going to vary by the state and the nature yes. of the complaint. But, um, but I have heard a lot of people express fear like that they don't have a case. Um, and again, that kind of links back to, well, they were just doing what they were told. This is supposedly the standard of care. Um, which, of course, I have my own thoughts on that. But um, how would you or how would transition justice respond to people who have a concern that, um, you know, going back to like, well, they were just following orders or I was the yeah. so-called perfect candidate and all that? I would say like right at this moment, you might not have a case, but don't definitely don't give up um, because down the road, I mean... I am confident there's going to be class action lawsuits against some of these, you know, clinics and organizations um, like Planned Parenthood, for instance, that are, you know, just handing out hormones like candy and, and things like that. Um, like, I really do think there's going to be some class action lawsuits. And then basically what needs to happen is like, obviously, the like the strongest cases right now are going to be looked at first. And that's just and a lot of those are going to be the minors, um, you know, which is, I mean, it, it's hard as a D-trans adult to, um, because we were let down by the medical profession as well. Um, but I think what needs to happen is some of these cases actually need to, to be won. And so like, after we get some cases that are won, it's going to open it up more to, you know, we're like more and more attorneys are going to be willing to take on these kinds of cases. And, you know, more angles are going to be considered um, because, like, I think the fraud angle is a really good angle as well. And that doesn't come with the statute of limitations. And, like, for instance, um, I've heard of some surgeons telling a patient, for instance, that after they have surgery, you know, like if they have bottom surgery, the result is going to be indistinguishable from, you know, a biological female or biological male. I've literally heard of, you know, surgeons telling people things like that. Or, you know, you'll be able to have a normal sex life after the surgery and just different things. Um, and that is absolutely fraud because you're, you're preparing. I mean, even looking at it from just like, this is a very weird angle, but like a consumer goods situation, like you were not given what was sold to you. And um, false advertising. Absolutely. False advertising. Yeah. So, I mean... And then we have, we know one lawyer right now that's working at it, working on it from a human rights angle as well. Um, like this care that it's not, that is not taking into account under, underlying issues and comorbidities, like that is a violation of human rights. So there's all these different angles that you can look at it from. And so for somebody who thinks they don't have a case right now, um, just don't give up hope because I mean, this whole thing is going to come crashing down and it is already starting. I hope you've been enjoying this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. If you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com shop, where you will find goods and services I've personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show. Okay. Well, thank you for clarifying that. Um, would it would it also seem like 
even if someone's worried that they don't have a case now, they should probably reach out anyway, just in case, you know, maybe the statute of limitations in their situation would mean that it would be a good idea to at least get a consultation sooner rather than later. Definitely. I mean, if you have any interest in pursuing legal action at all, I'd encourage you to contact Transition Justice. Um, So we've gotten a little bit of scrutiny because like on our website, there's a form with contact information, um, but that is optional. You can, you can always like send us an email or give us a call and, um, you know, just like see what we're all about first. But the reason we ask for a little bit of your story and your, your relative location, I think it asks for just like your city or state. And that is just so that we can know who's nearby, which attorneys we know nearby that could potentially help you and like what the laws are in that state as well with the statute of limitations and other things. You know, it's it's not to like collect personal information or anything like that. And, you know, just knowing a little bit about somebody's story, like whether they are a detransitioner, whether they're a parent of somebody who has been harmed or, you know, they're just you know, even people will reach out to us about my child has been affirmed by the school, you know, without my knowledge, what do I do about this? So, um, yeah, if you have any interest in pursuing legal action, I would reach out because we may be able to help you. And even if we don't have a case immediately, um, that is the direction it's heading in. Okay. So so your organization could potentially help with people who, um, don't just personally have a potential claim against a doctor, but also, in situations where um, a school, let's say, socially transitioning a child, um, which, as we know, is a psychosocial intervention that leads that increases the likelihood of medicalization and persistence, um, so transition justice could potentially get involved in cases like that as well. Or, um, well, we have a lot of parent volunteers who have dealt with exactly that scenario. So, um, I don't know that we've actually built any legal cases around that thus far. Um, and I don't know everything. I, so I, um, I just started last week with managing the social media pages, but, um, transition justice is a, is a project of partners for ethical care, which oh. is another nonprofit. Yeah. Somehow I so, didn't put two and two together. Yeah. I know. I mean, <laughs> no, I'm a lot of people don't, I'm sorry. Care, I didn't... So I've worked with them on previous episodes. So like Jennifer from partners for ethical care was on episode three. Um, and, uh, I think by the time this episode airs, I will have already been in Texas, but we're doing a film screening uh, at the right. Parental Care event. So sorry, I didn't like realize that Transition Justice was affiliated. That's great. Yeah, it's it's kind of its own um, project that uh, is separate from Partners for Ethical Care, but you know, it's a lot of the same volunteers are are working. I, I mean, it's the project of, of Partners for Ethical Care. So, um, and like a lot of them have you know, had custody issues with, you know, children, their children who were affirmed or, you know, with the school. And so um, even if it's not like a legal case immediately, there's definitely support there. And um, so I'd encourage people to reach out about that as well. Okay. And what about um, cases like Camille Kefels? Um, So she is actually suing the therapists who signed off on this idea of a non-binary top surgery, which is something she no longer believes in. Um, You know, she's said that there's no blueprint in nature for a non-binary breast removal. um, And she recognizes that what she needed help with was her physical health um, to address her mental health. 
Um, so for, you know, and part of her case um, against the therapists is that they didn't recognize and treat the underlying issues. Of course, for her, that would have, like, the most important thing was her physical health. But also she has said that, um, you know, one of the reasons that she felt so dysphoric toward her breasts was because of the sexual assault of her friend and how that made her feel unsafe with having a female body. Um, so, you know, when therapists overlook those sorts of issues or comorbidities and instead jump to this invasive medical treatment rather than, um, you know, first addressing comorbidities in non-invasive ways, does transition justice help in cases or would they potentially be able to help people who want to explore their options in terms of, um, addressing therapists' role in all this? I think so. Like, like I said earlier, um, there's so many angles that, that you can look at this from. And so, although on that particular case, medical malpractice, um, like if you were suing the surgeon, you know, obviously that would be more the medical malpractice, but I mean, if they're, I mean, you probably know more than I do, but I'm sure there's standard practices for the field of, of psychotherapy as well, or, you know, um, certain agreements that you have as a therapist that you're supposed to keep when a patient enters your practice. And I think if you could prove that that was deviated from, then you could have some kind of case. (laughs) I'm not a lawyer myself, but, um, like I know that, uh, we're just, yeah, we're just trying to, to approach this from many different angles. And I actually think, um, I think the therapists, no offense, no, you're, you're one of the good ones. Um, but I think they play a huge role in this. And so we shouldn't strictly, um, we shouldn't strictly point the finger at just the surgeon or the endocrinologist because you have somebody who's affirming these people and then directing them, giving, writing them letters to, to go to these other providers. Um, often before looking at underlying issues. Right. It's like, I mean, show us the evidence base, right? For any therapist who's, who has redefined their role as a therapist to be a letter writer, um, which like I never felt comfortable with, even with regard to like another trend, which is so much more innocuous, but the whole like emotional support animal thing, (laughs) right? Like, So there are service animals that are actually trained for like, you know, recognizing seizures in an epileptic patient or something like that. And that, you know, that there's definitely a medical need for. But um, a lot of people seek these emotional support animal letters from therapists basically just to um, get an apartment that doesn't allow pets to um, allow their pet. And whenever as a therapist, I've had people coming to me and that's what they want. It's like, well, wait, that's not my job. Sorry. I'm not a letter writing service. I'm, I'm a mental health provider. I'm here to partner with you in, um, addressing what you came here for, not to like play some kind of role as a cog in a machine. Um, now that doesn't mean like that I've never written a letter for a long-term patient who, you know, a year into therapy, needs to move apartments and they're really anxious without their cat. Okay, fine. Like I'm not going to, I'm, it's not a hill I'm going to die on, but still like I in general have a bit of a problem with people trying to redefine the role of a therapist to be, um, a rubber stamper. 
Um, I prefer to have um, as little control or influence in my client's life as possible because I feel like the moment you're the moment you step outside of the role of therapist and take on any of these other roles, you're sort of redefining what therapy is because a therapist is not a friend. They're not an enabler. They're not a social worker. They're, um, it's like, I'm trying, I'm like actually struggling to find the words to express a point that I'm trying to make. Mm. Sometimes people come to me because everyone else in their life has an opinion about them and what they should do. And they need a space where they can hear their own thoughts. You know, it's like their parents want them to have a certain type of partner. Their partner wants them to ditch their friends. Their friends want them to ditch their partner. Their boss wants them to work late. Their partner wants them to come home early. Everybody wants something from them, you know, and, and everyone's own personal needs and agenda and value systems are influencing what they want from my patient. And so I might be creating that one relational space in their whole life where no, we're here to talk about you and what you want, <laughs> right? And you need that neutrality. Um, and so the moment um, someone tries to redefine the role of a therapist to write letters to facilitate something in a person's life, I feel like it starts to change that role. And I'm having a hard time articulating exactly what the connection is there, but I think you, well, you get me. <laughs> It goes back, yeah, I think so. It goes back to this idea of like, you know, is care usually directed by the patient or is it supposed to be, is the provider supposed to be the one who's more knowledgeable? And it's like, you know, a patient or client coming to therapy being like, can you do this for me? Can you do that for me? You know, I need this. You're my ticket to that. It's it's like, it's similar to like a, a patient going to a doctor and, and just being like, you know, I, like you have to give me these drugs or I'm going to kill myself. Um, like it's just not, you know, again, I haven't been to medical school or therapy school or anything, but it's just like, that seems highly unethical to just, you know, be like a letter mill or a pill dispenser. Like it's just not the role of a provider at all. Well, and I'm like, I'm thinking a little bit more deeply about this from a re relational lens, because I, I would say that um, although I'm quite eclectic as a therapist, relational psychodynamic is my foundation. And, um, and so what the patient comes to the therapist expecting that the therapist will do for them is like very rich material to explore. So, you know, for example, I've had relationships with clients where I notice there's a strong tendency in my relationship with that particular client to, for me to find myself like feeling like I'm like a coach, um, like pushing them in the direction of growth. And it's so important for me to notice that because what's happening is a relational process in the transference and countertransference. So in the client's feelings toward me and in my feelings toward them um, through a process called projective identification. And so what's happening there is that the patient has maybe even unconsciously decided that I'm going to represent the part of them that wants change. And then they get to battle out their inner parts, inner conflict with me. So the patient sees me as the one who represents 
um, the desire for self-improvement. And sometimes this comes along with some projection that I like live some perfect saintly life where I get up at five in the morning and run and meditate and (laughs) drink green juice and like, you know, like who knows what assumption someone has, but they, you know, there's kind of this projection of an authority figure and like a beacon of healthy behaviors. And that's what I'm seen to represent. And then the patient gets to sort of argue with me. Um, and, and in the process, sometimes they double down and they defend why they should sleep in and eat junk food and drink too much and have sex with the wrong people. Like that is a relational dynamic that can play out in therapy. And that's just one example. There are many similar relational dynamics. And that's why I feel like a relational psychodynamic foundation for a therapist is so important because you catch that, you notice what's happening, right? You notice the assumptions that the client seems to be bringing, you notice a tendency. Now, of course, I exaggerated it to make a point. I don't get into battles with my clients where I'm pushing them to change. That's precisely what I try to avoid. But that's why it's so important to be aware of how these dynamics can play out and to scrutinize my countertransference. So when I have that type of relationship with a patient, part of the, the work of good therapy is to say, you know, I'm noticing that when we get together, it kind of seems like you see me as having this agenda for you that you should be a better person in all these ways, that you should be more responsible, more fit, um, and that you kind of seem like you're reacting as if I'm pushing you, and then you get defensive as to why you should stay stuck. And I notice that that's not the dynamic that I want with you because Mm. this is actually an inner conflict in you between parts of you that want to grow and change and parts of you that want to stay where you're comfortable. And my role isn't actually to be your coach and to adjust collude with one part of you that's getting projected onto me. My role is to be a neutral witness in your life that can hold up a mirror to help you work out this conflict within you. So how can we get back there? And those are very productive conversations. And I'm so glad that I have a foundation in how to have those conversations. And that's just one type of dynamic that can play out, but it's a fairly common one. Um, And, you know, the reason I bring this up in this context is that I think whenever we add something like letter writing or rubber stamping to a therapist's job description, it does fundamentally change the job description. And, and I would say like maybe the primary way in which it does is it then sort of has the therapist collude with a certain part of the client that wants a certain thing, right? So if a patient were to come to me, let's say I, let's say I was not doing the type of work I'm doing today. Let's say I was where I was at a few years ago um, and a patient came to me wanting me to write a letter for them. Um, If I were to just assume that that's all that's needed and that's the end of the story, there's no more complexity to it, and that my job really is to write a letter, then I'm basically seeing one part of my patient, which is the part of them that wants to move ahead with this idea that they think is going to help them. And I'm saying, yes, this is the one true, correct part of you. I agree with it. And my job is now to empower this part of you to dominate your life and your decision making. And there is so much I could be missing if I do that. That's part of the process whereby I could be doing great harm to a patient because if I'm doing that in the first or second or third or even the 10th visit, but a lot of these therapists will sign up like the Gallup, the gender affirming letter project, like a lot of therapists will actually sign up 
to write these letters, no questions asked at the first visit. But even if I was doing it at the 10th visit, now I've had these relational processes play out with clients like years into therapy and it takes a long time to get there. So even the 10th visit, I would say is still, you know, arguably very risky to just assume that that's all there is to the story. And I think this dynamic plays out between parents and teenagers as well, where like trans-identified teenagers sort of project onto their parents that the parents are the part of them that don't want to do this. And then the teenager gets to double down on the part of them that does want to do this and align with that. And when they get into a power struggle, then the teen doesn't have to grapple with the fact that they have their own ambivalence as well they should. This is a major life-changing decision. Why shouldn't you have Mm. some doubt as to whether this is right for you? So thanks for bearing with me, Kat, because I I like needed to process that. I needed to find the words for that. And um, I hope that- That was fascinating and really resonated with Mm. me, especially that last part. Oh yeah? What Um, about the last part? Well, you know, I spent a long time grappling with the idea of transition, you know, um, and I've all, I always blamed other people like, like, oh, my parents wouldn't let me transition. And then it was like, my partner will leave me if I transition. And, but really like I was conflicted within myself, you know? Um, and that's why, I mean, that's part of why it like took me over a decade um, to actually do it was because I was conflicted within myself, but it's like, you know, now I have a different perspective on it after detransitioning. But like, um, while I was trans, like I had so much like pent up rage, you know, and I'm sure the testosterone didn't help with that, but it was like, I could have been my true self. Cause I heard about all those trans kids coming out and, and stuff. And like, I could have been my true self way back then. And then I would be happy now. And like, my life would be everything I wanted, but you know, you stopped me. And yeah, I think absolutely my parents were the scapegoat for like that ambivalence I felt within myself about transition. Mm. And yet it's like so much safer to have a scapegoat, to have a parent that you're mad at, to have someone in your life that's trying to stand in your way of this and protect you, even if you don't see it as protection. It's so much safer to have that in your life than to just have a total free-for-all. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, it's also dangerous to project that conflict onto someone else when really it's a conflict within you. And that's sort of that like fine line I'm always walking with the parents who come to me. It's like, you need to not get wrapped up into this in a way that's just going to drive them further away. But at the same time, you do need to have a stance. But at the same time, Mm -hmm. like sometimes parents wanting, you know, parents come to me wanting their children to desist. And it's like, you know, the, the more rigid of an idea you have as a parent for what that process is supposed to look like, the harder it's going to be. Like parents come to me like, oh, I just want her to understand this rationally or see it this way. And it's like, well, you know, is is that the most important thing to you at the end of the day that your 17 year old think about this in the same way you think about it at 40 or, (laughs) um, or is it just important that, that your daughter is safe at the end of the day? And if that means that this is a process that takes place much differently, you know, if it's 
letting go of an emotional attachment to this identity as she shifts her friend groups. And she never says, mom and dad, you're right. I'm sorry. (laughs) You know, or she never even thinks about it rationally. But one day she's like, actually, I think I'm just a girl. You know, wouldn't that be okay? (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, their brains aren't even fully developed yet. You know, they might not even be capable of thinking in the same way until they're older. I mean, I've definitely noticed, I feel like in the last few years, I've really matured. Not that I'm mature, but I've like, I've definitely matured a lot, like compared to how I used to be. And I feel much more, I don't completely feel like an adult, but I feel like more of an adult than I used to be. So sometimes these things just take time. And, you know, I'm really, really glad that I wasn't able to transition as a teenager and, you know, because puberty blockers actually, you know, they have the potential to permanently stunt brain development. And so, you know, your brain may never develop to its full capacity if if you're given puberty blockers, which is, you know, really terrifying to think about. Um, but yeah, I... I really agree with what you're saying. I, I, I think the, the most important thing is just protect safeguarding and protecting young people who who come out as trans and you know, especially the medical piece. I mean, I have mixed feelings about like social transition because it's, you know, on one hand that can lead to medicalization. Um, but also I feel like one of the reasons I did medicalize is because I wanted to be seen as a man socially you know, I felt like it lit this fire under me to medically transition. And so I don't know, but in terms of a kid, when your identity is like forming, I feel like social transition is a really scary concept because, you know, it's, it's literally when your brain is getting wired. And I even think finding out about, you know, that I could, I didn't have to be a woman if I didn't want to, like it, it really affected my self-concept and, like my attractions to other people, like I, I started seeing myself as, you know, a man attracted to other men or a man attracted to women. Um, and that, I mean, it still affects me to this day, to be perfectly honest. That's probably the one thing that I'm still grappling with is like seeing myself in relation to others, um, especially like romantic relationships. Like, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's really weird. And I don't know, I mean, I like to think I can get past it, but it's really challenging to navigate. And I, de- I definitely don't think that adults around children should be like reinforcing that idea um, at a very impressionable age. Well, it is crazy making. It is, it's just literally not true that humans can change sex. And we live in an age where we have a lot of freedoms you know, at the push of a button, if you if you have a decent income, at the push of a button, you can have items from all around the world delivered to your home in two days. Um, there there are so many choices we have, and and it's like there's this push, and it feels very American. <laughs> um, this sort of push for more and more freedoms and for the destruction of all limits, but that's not actually what makes human beings happy. Um, like we need, we need parameters. That's like, so the best metaphor that I can think of for boundaries is like a fence. Like if you have a child and a yard with a fence, you can tell your child, go outside and play. 
And then no matter what happens, as long as they stay within the boundaries of that fence, you know, the ball can go rolling down the hill and they can go running after it. You know, your kid's going to be okay. But if you don't have a fence around your yard and that ball goes rolling down that hill, your kid could run out into traffic and get hit. So having some parameters, knowing what is set in stone allows us to relax into the space created around those um, or within those lines. And biological sex is one of those things. It is a hard limit. There are so many things you can choose. Um, And, you know, I I wouldn't say that the state of the world is great for women and girls right now. I think there's still a lot working against us. But we do have many more freedoms than women and girls have had in other times and places. And, you know, we can choose how we dress. We can choose how we wear our hair. We can choose what education and career paths we pursue. Um, we can choose what pets we have and where we live, right? Um, <laughs> there, there are all of these things that we can choose, but we cannot choose our sex. And I think that that's a comforting fact because choice is overwhelming. I mean, decision fatigue is real. Analysis paralysis is real. And we know from the paradox of choice that too many choices makes a person unhappy. So, and there have been studies that have, that have demonstrated this, right? That if you um, give a person too many choices, they'll walk away feeling like, oh, would I have been happier with that other choice? Whereas if you have a limited number of choices or you don't have a choice, then you um, sort of what's the word, like you satisfice, like you adjust your level of satisfaction, just accept that that thing in your life is a given. And then you choose to be happy and you choose to move on to other areas where you do have some creative control. And so I think it's really destructive for our mental health on, I I think trans ideology is really destructive for our mental health in a number of ways. But one of them is, is this, that it takes one of those few things in life that is fixed, that is predetermined for us, that is a hard limit. And it tries to tell us that we should try to knock those walls down. And in the process, it encourages endless navel gazing and rumination, which is also not good for mental health. It's not good to be so self-focused and self-analyzing and am I this and am I that? Um, and, And it has us sort of at war with nature, whereas just accepting that, like you said earlier, this body is a gift and maybe a part of you wished that it wasn't female, um, you know, and, I don't know that we can say that that's altogether different from like wishing that a body was a different shape or had a different hair color or anything like that. There are things that we all have to struggle to accept about the lot that we were given in life. But ultimately, I think that there's so much more power and acceptance and gratitude even for those givens in life and and in taking creative control over the things, you know, that take place within that fence that are really truly ours to control. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, I think um like even learning about, oh, I guess I don't have to choose to be a woman. It's like if I feel like if I'd never encountered that, it's kind of like I probably would have just ended up accepting myself like way mm-hmm. earlier on rather than having to go through transitioning and detransitioning to basically come to the same conclusion. So yeah, I, I'm pro fence, uh, <laughs> pro pro limits. Well, Kat, this has been an absolutely beautiful conversation. I really thank you for joining me today. Um, so, where can people go for you and for transition justice? 
Yeah, um, I'll start with transition justice because that one's easy. It's uh, www.transitionjustice.org. Um, or you can also email help at transitionjustice.org. And um, so for me, I have so many different links at this point because I have like my, you know, my activism pages and then my music pages. Um, but I'm Kat Kattinson on Twitter and YouTube. Um, that's where I post most of my sort of analytical gender scientific content uh, hodgepodge of different things. Um, and then I have my music pages, which are all some iteration of Cat Robot Official or Cat Robot Music, because um, my music name is Cat Robot. And I'm on all the platforms pretty much with that name. And, you know, I mostly do kind of pop and electronic music, but I do some weird experimental stuff too. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much my links. Um. Okay. And I'll, I'll round this out by saying where people can go to hear from both you and me is they can watch Affirmation Generation, which is at yes. affirmationgenerationmovie.com. You can currently watch the early access version for free. Just go to that link and click on Vimeo. Um, and you can follow Affirmation Generation on Twitter at 2022 Affirmation or on Instagram at Affirmation Generation. Um, I'm really proud to be a part of this project and honored to be alongside you in it. It's really good to see you, Kat, just to see that you're well and thriving and um, doing meaningful work. Um, it's been great chatting with you today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Stephanie. This has been, wow, a really deep conversation that I definitely delved into some subjects I haven't before in an interview. Um, but, you know, thank you for asking some great questions and like, I... I do feel really safe with you and you're like a really excellent interviewer. So thank you so much. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. It means a lot. Thank you. I was ready to leave everything behind for you. Maybe there was a part of me that planned to miss the train that day. The same part that already knew before you didn't pick up that something was very wrong. Did I love you because your presence made me feel whole? Or just because your absence made me feel empty? I knew then that I couldn't just leave you behind, but me as well. Because the me I was when I was with you, she wasn't real.
I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast with Stephanie Wynn, LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. At SomeTherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at SomeTherapist. If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at SomeTherapist.com. You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.